When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Ollie. Hey, Dave. What's going on? Welcome to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. So happy to be here another day. Another day. Uh, I should also mention, you know, we are a proud member of the Pantheon podcast family. Still. We are indeed. Still and always. Still, still and hopefully always. Always and forever, like peaches and herb. Is it herb? Herb? I think it's peaches and herb. Herb. It's not herb. Espanol. Herb in some cases, but the, t- the actual band or couple, Peaches and Herb. Yes. See, more fun facts. <laughs> uh, somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Was Herb his real name? I, I would assume that Peaches would be the woman and Herb would be the guy. But, you know, I don't want to judge. Peaches and Herb are an American vocal duo. Herb fame has remained a constant as Herb since the duo was created in 1966. Seven different women have filled the role of Peaches, most notably Francine Peaches Heard Barker, the original Peaches who lent her name to the duo, and Linda Green, the third Peaches who appeared on the duo's biggest hits, Shake Your Groove Thing and Reunited. I learned How so about that it's like Menudo. I learned so much. I know. Who knew Peaches was uh, disposable? Like you can just Peaches go bad once in a while? Millions of peaches, peaches, <laughs> peaches for, for me, peaches for me. <laughs> yeah, presidents of the United States of America, yes. a favorite 90s band. Look at that, 90s, 70s, we're also we're 80s. Straight. Yeah, we are here because we are talking to Melissa Gould, a good friend of mine. Um, she has a book out, it's called Widowish. Widowish is a fabulous memoir from Melissa Gould. She wrote the heartbreaking and somehow uplifting story of her of the death of her husband. She will explain it all in our interview and if you read the book which we highly recommend. And it's the story of his of his illness, his ultimate untimely death and her life now. Really it's a tragic but really a really a great interesting read and very inspiring. Indeed. Melissa's husband, Joel, was a great friend of mine, also involved in the music industry. So that's kind of ties it all together with and Melissa, of course, is still a, a really good friend. And so we were happy to bring her onto the podcast and talk about this amazing book. So why don't we get right into it? We're talking with Melissa Gould, author of Widowish. All right. So the reason we're talking is we have Melissa Gould, who has a book out, Widowish. This is your story. I guess we could start with with widowish. I mean, it's kind of like being we described ourselves as Jewish. You know, we are Jewish, but we're kind of Jewish. Did you come up with that term? Jewish, yes. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> yes, I came up with widowish because when my husband died, I was young and you know in my forties, and I did not look like a widow. And we all have an idea of what a widow looks like. And um, which unfortunately I think has changed because of COVID. There are so many of us now, but at the time um, there were not that many young widows around. And I felt that I did not look like a widow. I did not act like a widow for a lot of reasons. I just, I was out in the world. I had my daughter to raise. I was living my life, but I felt like a widow. And I still feel like a widow all these years later. So I kept thinking that I was widow-ish. And some of that has to do with really just perception in the world of what grief looks like and what loss looks like and what widowhood looks like. And because I didn't really fit into that peg of, you know, an older person dressed in black, home bereft and crying all the time. Even though I was doing those things, nobody saw that. But 
Um, I just didn't, I felt like I was widow-ish. And that's how I came up with the title. I met you through Joel at Through Soccer as I meet all my friends. <laughs> but I meet my good friends because ever since middle school, because they're wearing, uh, I see a t-shirt or something and I, I, oh, I can yeah. relate to them. <laughs> Joel was wearing a Wilco shirt at a soccer game. Mm-hmm. I, I need to talk to you. Who are you? I am so happy to see someone who can, I can relate to. And, um, and that's, that became our, that became our love affair. Like all of a sudden we, we bonded through, you know, through Wilco. It was dad. Yeah. Through Tweety. It was, you know, dad rock. And I don't know how that, how that bloomed, but it, it did. I mean, we, we went to, uh, we used to go to a lot of, you know, went to rock shows and, you know, it was great. I, I remember, actually, I remember with soccer because you had a crush on the soccer coach, if I remember correctly, which was the dentist. What? And oh I, so you were focused on the coach and I think Joel and I went away and just kind of <laughs> talked rock and roll. And was that watching the actual soccer game? Well, it was six year olds. I, I don't really speak the sports. Right. So <laughs> I was there to cheer on our daughter and to be supportive, but I was not that into it. <laughs> Still not. So it's good to have distractions. Dave, you said also love of the Dodgers. Yeah, I'm sure he was wearing a Dodger cap, but Joel, first of all, is an L.A. guy through and through. I mean, even though, I'm sorry, did he live up in, he didn't live up in in, uh, Seattle. He went up to. He, I think like you, are the rare few people who were born and raised in Los Angeles. At least who I know. Everybody I know is a transplant, but I feel like Joel was unique in my world early on when we met because he was born and raised here. And I think you were too. So I'm sure you did bond over that. Yeah. He was a couple years older than me. And I know he worked at Tempo Records at in Northridge, which yeah. I went to go when I was in college every Tuesday I, or I would go and, you know, pick New up, places. get one, get one, <laughs> one album or, you know, like a, on my limited budget. And I'm sure I ran into him there. So we, you know, we kind of bumped into each other once in a while. I'm sure he was at shows that I was at, but it was, you know, yeah. but it was on the soccer pitch when we, uh, that's <laughs> when our eyes met. That. That's great. <laughs> and, and your book is kind of a, I mean, it's a love story. It, it you know, it's. Thank you. That's how I see it. Good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's a romantic comedy kind of in a way, the way you framed it. <laughs> it's a rom-com <laughs> with, you know, tinges of, uh, you know, of course you have to have a little bit of sadness in, in the, with the laughter. I think you ask the first few chapters which are pretty heavy, but there's some, I mean, there's, it's, there's a light touch to some of the heaviness in places, but it does kind of take a different turn tonally. So, but yeah, it's sad. It's a sad story. My husband died. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty sad. But the love story, the way you told it, you know, but the meeting and how he, how he came for you is really sweet and beautiful. And it was perfect background. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Pretty romantic. So the story is though, that you were working at a record label as well. Well, we met when we were both working at Atlantic records. It was my summer job and it was his job job because he was a few years older than me. And we always, we just had this connection from like the minute we met. I mean, he had like his, it's almost like he had like this rocker look, but he's so not a rocker and never was, but he had like this long, thick hair, and he would wear like his t-shirts with band names and shorts and combat boots. And he just was like, <laughs> it was the early nineties. That's how he dressed. Yeah. And he just had, he just was funny and we just sort of got each other at hello. I mean, it wasn't necessarily romantic at the time. It really wasn't at all. We were just friends. We had this like connection and um, it was really cool to be working at a record label together. And he was so immersed in the world of music. And I write about that in my book. It's that he really tracked bands and he knew everything there was to know about bands before people even knew they were bands. And he knew which A&R guys signed, which bands to which label, what, like he, he who produced what he just, and it was on every genre. And he just was an avid music 
lover. He just loved it. He went to shows all the time and he was just a fun guy to hang out with. And we, you know, we just were different places in our lives. And then it wasn't until I then moved to New York and lived in New York for a number of years, but I would still hear from Joel on occasion. This was, you know, pre-email, pre-texting, pre-computer, really. But we had so many friends in common and I would hear oh, I ran into Joel at the replacement show last night and he asked about you or, you know, people were always running into him and and we kind of kept very loosely in touch. But when I moved back from New York because I was determined to become a television writer um, and I moved back to L.A. and literally like it could have been the I don't think it was the day I got back, but it was definitely like within the first five days of my coming back to L.A. to pursue my TV writing career. A friend invited me to a Dodger game and I had never been, big surprise, I had never been to a Dodger game before. And we went and literally the minute I walked in and after I gave the guy my ticket, I see Joel standing there. He like happened to be turned around looking for his dad who was meeting him at the game. And it was so out of context and it was so strange because I just didn't know Joel as like a sports guy. I knew him as the music guy. And if I had run into him you know, at a show that same day or night, that would have made much more sense. I wouldn't have been as shocked, but it was shocking to see in a good way. Shock. And then that just kind of started a reconnection between us. And then within a year, I left LA to go to Seattle to work on Bill Nye, the science guy. But at that point, Joel and I, like we, we knew there was something there between us that was undeniable. We were completely platonic. He was married I was living my life, had boyfriends and this and that. And I, I moved up to Seattle and then we had a couple of phone conversations. Then his whole life changed and he came up there and he was working. Um, he was on tour with Anthrax. No, he was on the road with Evan Saxon doing this like promotional. It was called Right Between the Acts and they would provide the music in between the acts at a concert to match the band's influence and stuff like that. Anyway, he was on the road with Anthrax, came up to Seattle and sort of declared his love for me. And I was like, okay, <laughs> sounds good. And then he went on to live his life for like another, like probably six months. And I stayed up in Seattle. And then it was like, finally the timing was right. And we got together. Why were you, you wanted to be a TV writer, but you were working for Atlantic Records. I, um, what, what happened? So Atlantic, so I worked at Atlantic. It was like my summer job since I was like 13. So I worked in the New York office and the LA office because I was bi-coastal my whole life because my dad always lived in Manhattan and my mom lived here. It's like, you know, my dad had a friend. And I got a gotcha. job at Atlantic. It was the best job in the world. I was always into music. So I worked in publicity and artist relations in both on both coasts. So it was like, I loved it. But I never really had aspirations of working in the music industry. I wanted to be a writer. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I just didn't know what that would look like. So when I moved to New York, I was working at an ad agency thinking, okay, I'll be a copywriter and write ad copy. And, and I was in New York and I loved it. It was a great experience. I worked at a really cool ad agency with like the best people but similar to what I was saying about Joel kind of tracking all of these bands and knowing who did what, like everybody around me in advertising knew which ad agencies were producing, which campaigns, who the director was. And I just, I didn't have that level of interest. And a friend of mine, suge- knowing that about me, that I wasn't really tracking and I kind of was just going through the motions. I was putting together my, my copywriting portfolio and it was good and I enjoyed it. But she suggested that I take a screenwriting class because she felt that everybody in advertising was a frustrated screenwriter or director. And I wasn't either of those things, but I thought, all right, I'll just take a class. I was, you know, a kid, I was 20 something early, like 21, maybe, maybe 22. And um, I took a screenwriting class at the new school. Within the first five minutes, I was like, oh no, I'm gonna have to move back to LA. Cause I was like, this is it. Like finally, like the pieces of the puzzle fit together. And I was like, I can write scripts. And so when I did move back to LA, I was really like so ambitious and so determined. And so, I mean, if I met somebody when I was still living in New York, it's like, I met somebody on the subway whose cousin's roommate was like a TV writing assistant. And I called him like, I was fearless. I was going for it. And I decided I still kept my apartment in New York when I moved back to LA, I was like, if I don't get a 
on-screen credit in one year, I'm moving back to New York. So that was, that was so like the hubris of like this young 20 something kid, but then I got Bill Nye the science guy. So that was the great irony is that I moved, I kept my apartment in New York, moved to LA to pursue a TV writing career. And within a year, maybe it was a year and a half, um, I ended up moving to Seattle to work on my first TV show. <laughs> How was the experience on Bill Nye? Oh my God. It was amazing. I loved it. I was so happy to have a job writing for TV. Like I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe they were going to pay me. Like I couldn't believe that I was doing my dream job living in Seattle at that time. It was 1993. So, you know, Kurt Cobain was alive and well, I would see all of those. I mean, grunge, like you, Seattle, it was like the height of grunge. And so it was like the place to be. I loved music. I was still very connected to music and still very into music and very into band. So I would go to shows all the time. I met the coolest people. I saw the coolest people. I saw, you know, it's like, it just was Mecca to be there. And it was a really fun time because in Seattle, you know, at the time people didn't really know who Bill and I was. Now, of course, he's Bill Nye, the science guy, but at the time it was a brand new show, but people in Seattle knew who he was because he was sort of a local celebrity. And so that was fun. It was just, it was great. It was like an ideal first job experience. I loved every second. And how long were you on the show? I was there the first two years of the show. I think I wrote that many episodes. And so by the time Joel came up there, knock it on your door. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. Or maybe it had just been a year Maybe I came back. We wrote so many episodes. It was, I feel like I wrote a hundred episodes, but like the episodes were so, if you've ever seen Bill Nye, it's, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's like these fast clips of science, science, science. So yeah. So by the time Joel came up, I was like, you know, I really do want to be to, to write and I want to be on a show and I didn't want to, I could already tell I was getting kind of pinpointed as like a kid writer writing for mm-hmm. kids. And I didn't want that. I wanted to see what else would be available to me. And so then right after that, when I moved back to L.A., my next job, and it was a big one, was writing on Party of Five, which was also like huge at the time. So that was like, it was a different experience from Bill Nye because Bill Nye was so under the radar. And then to go on to Party of Five, which was like just the biggest deal, was a very different experience. Yeah. We are talking with Melissa Gould. She is the author of the fabulous memoir, Widowish. And we will be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our interview with Melissa Gould. 
So with part of your five, isn't it? How did that work? Because uh, you kind of write what you know. Did you bring some some of your own experiences into that show? On Party of Five, I had written, there was a show I loved called My So-Called Life. One of my favorites. Yeah, and Jared Leto. And I think My So-Called Life only lasted one season and they canceled it. My goal was to work on My So-Called Life. (laughs) (laughs) You wanted to write for Jordan Catalano, right? Yes, (laughs) Um, which I could, which was a little bit more my speed in terms of writing and content and this and that. But I had written a spec, my so-called life script as a sample. And at the time, like 90210 was a big show. You like Fox was the new network in town. They were catering to like teens and I loved all of their programming. And Party Five was new and it was a very serious show to work on with some very serious people. And I really was like the young, like, get away from me, kid, you're bothering me. Kind of, I was the kid bothering everybody. But I think I wrote four episodes of Party of Five, and I learned so much just about writing. And it was a great experience, too, in a very different way than Bill and I was. It was really like school, Party of Five. Yeah, I hadn't heard about Party of Five. I never watched it, but I know it's now people love it, our generation. Well, even yeah. now when people hear that about me, they're like, oh, my God. yeah. What was Bailey really like? (laughs) Well, as a woman and young in the the 20s, I mean, did you experience the, I guess you kind of touched on that, like, uh, get away, kid, you're bothering me. But, uh, you know, you had something to say. You were legit. And, you know, how did you fight your way through that uh, that conundrum of trying to, to kind of assert yourself? Did you assert yourself? No, I was very insecure on that show, if you can believe it. (laughs) (laughs) I was really like all everybody had worked together before mm-hmm. on a different show. I was much younger than everybody and had the least experience. And I also may have been the only one in the room who did not go to Harvard. So there were, I was intimidated every day and it was a very nice group of people, but there were just things that seemed insurmountable and it was difficult for me. A lot of my TV staff writing experiences were challenging because I could never figure out, I could never navigate the politics correctly. And there are so many, I mean, I think in every industry, there are so many politics. I, I just, I couldn't navigate it to my advantage. I was too naive or too honest, or I couldn't play. And I also realized that all I wanted to do was write and I could write, I could write a good script. I wrote, I turned in great first drafts. I loved it, but I realized that was such a small part of the job, the actual writing. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't great at all the other stuff, but give me a script to write, I could do it. The rest, not so much. So are you gonna bring this to, this information to your daughter now or what? I mean, she's getting to that age now, she's 20. (laughs) Well, she does not have any aspirations of writing. I mean, if she could be Kim Kardashian's assistant, that would be her dream job. (laughs) So That would be your dream job. Not really. No? But for for Sophie, no, she would, like she's all into that kind of, we're very different in that way. But I mean, but you will, I mean, I guess it's kind of, you know, she will have her first job and trying to find her way is, do you I'll have you like something. this? She has a great work ethic. I mean, this kid has been working since she was, you know, I think a sophomore in high school, she worked in an ice cream place and she worked like she's had, she has a job on campus. She worked at Warner brothers last summer in the studio store. Like she works, she, you know, she's not afraid of, of having a job. She's gives it up her everything wherever she has had a job. But in terms of like a career, I don't know that she knows yet. I don't know that it's in Hollywood the way I had a career in Hollywood. I'm not, I, I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of up in the air. As it's okay for a 20 year old. Right. As it should be. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Listen, I think that I was very fortunate to have a direction. Like I said, I always knew I want to be a writer. I always knew that. I just didn't know where, how, you know, I could have been a journalist. I could have, I thought I was going to be an advertising. Then I ended up TV writer. Now I have this memoir. Like, I was always on this path, like under the umbrella of writing. And I always felt that that was such a gift because I have so many people in my life who really have struggled with like, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, and 
and it takes a while to find it sometimes. So that's where I feel like I, at least I knew and I had some direction to follow. But I, I think mine is not typical. I think it's more typical to kind of be floundering and then you kind of fall into something and you realize, oh, my sister is really good at this and that's what you pursue. But I knew writing that that's why when you asked like what was it like working at Atlantic or I just I loved it but I knew that wasn't going to be it for me yeah that's it like just an observation about writing how you say I mean it's a big umbrella and you can do almost anything with it but probably most people see any career that way you really do have to be the way you described being a go-getter that you would call anybody the assistant of an assistant yeah and to get a job like that which are coveted jobs it's kind of really what you have to do. I mean, in addition to being a good writer, you know, you have to be really, I mean, maybe even more so than other, you know, than some other careers, not in Hollywood. It is amazing. Like sometimes I, I look back on my career life and I, I really do feel so like, I can't believe I've done these things. Like I wanted to do this and I did it and I want to do that. And I did like check, check. Like it's just, it's all worked out. And that's, what's so crazy. Like, you know, I think, early on, I thought I was going to be an author. Like that's what writers did. They wrote books. Right. And I was an avid reader as a kid. And you know, I would read like three or four books at a time. Like I just was constantly reading. And I think I assumed I would be an author. And then I grew up, had other interests. Again, writing was always a constant, but that's the irony about now I am an author, but it's because my husband died. So it's this crazy, like, what? Like, I, I so wish these were not the circumstances under which I became an author, but it is. Yeah. And it's crazy. Two questions about that. The first one, though, you, you mentioned in the book after he passed about going about starting to write again, knowing that you you should be doing something and starting to write again. And I assume that meant for, you know, TV or, or screenplays. Did you pursue that as well? Well, this is what happened when Joel was very sick with his M, the multiple sclerosis. It was really starting to affect his daily life. It was a completely different business, but I thought, okay, Joel's sick. This isn't going away. I better get back into TV. And that's where we'll have like the best health insurance and I'll make the most money and all of these things like would have been really good for us. So I, I wrote a spec script and I started to contact people I had worked with in the past just to let them know I'm back. You know, it's not like Hollywood was like, Hey, what happened to Melissa Gould? But I still had a lot of friends and a lot of people, and a lot of people who supported me. So I wrote the script thinking, okay, I'll get, I'll use it to get staffed on a show or if somebody's interested in the script and making the script fantastic. But it was really just about like getting back in because you're only as good as the last thing you wrote. And the last thing for me had been a few years at that point. So I really needed some new material. So I wrote this script on spec and I had planned to start sending it out, let's say like the following Monday. That Saturday though is when I took Joel to the hospital and that lasted for three weeks, Joel being in the hospital. So my script kind of sat there and when he died and once I got out of all of my like shock over losing him so unexpectedly, the thought of going back to that script and pursuing any kind of screenwriting thing, like I couldn't wrap my head around it. It was like too much, too all consuming. I wanted to be there for Sophie. You know, I, I talk about my, I have an only child and I felt like an only parent. And it's an important distinction for me because I didn't want people thinking I was divorced or that this was something I had chosen. Like, no, I, lost my husband. I became an only parent and Sophie became my sole focus. And I knew that if I were to start writing in Hollywood again, I wouldn't be able to be there. I wouldn't be able to pick her up after school. I wouldn't be there for dinner because, you know, that's long hours when you're working on a TV show. And thankfully I had some breathing room and I wasn't, did not have to find a job immediately. And I'm so grateful for that. But so in all of this tumult of losing my husband and a little bit of time had passed and a friend encouraged me to join her writing group to get back to your question, Ollie. <laughs> and I joined this writing group after some internal debate <laughs> and it really was the best thing for me. It was just for me. It was once a week for like two hours it was down the street from my house and I could go and I could just start writing. And I knew it would be a way back to myself in the midst of all of this grief, but I started writing a novel and a friend of mine 
after, you know, maybe the session was wrapping up and I was signing up for the next session and the friend who had encouraged me to join this group made a comment one night, like, I like, I love your novel. It's so good. I'm, you know, so glad that you're writing it, but you know, your husband just died. You're raising Sophie on your own and you're not writing about any of it. And I really think you should. And I was like, what? Like it had never occurred to me in all of my years of being a writer. It had never occurred to me to write about myself or anything that was going on for me personally. It just was not in my frame of mind ever at all. But it was all I kept thinking about for the next week of like, yeah, maybe like, because I realized I did have so much to say. I had so much to say about how I was perceived in the world as a widow, being a young widow, being a mom, a widow mom. I had just started seeing somebody and that was very complicated feeling. And I just was like, you know what? I, I do have a lot to say. And then I did start writing the the following week in class. I was like, that's all I could think about was writing about what was going on for me. And then once I started, I couldn't stop. So everything in my life, everything day to day that I was dealing with became fodder for my essays. Then I started getting my essays published and, and it all culminated in this book, really. I mean, it was a number of years, but what happened first to the novel that you were writing during the first group? Or do you think you'll ever do anything I with it? That, you know, I haven't looked at it in a really long time. I remember loving it. And I remember loving the people in it and the scenarios I was creating for these characters. I don't know. I could go back to it. I may just start fresh with something new. I think I have another memoir. There's a lot of curiosity kind of <laughs> widowish takes place basically um, year one, losing my husband. And people, early readers are like, well, what happened? Like, you know, <laughs> what happened next? Are you and Marco still together? And <laughs> all of these, and what happened to your daughter? So I don't know if there's more to the widowish story. I, I feel like there might be, but I, I'm not oh. sure what's next, but some, something good will come out of all of this. I'm sure. Well, of course yeah. there's more to it. You're still, <laughs> you're still living. You're still around. You're, you're living yeah. your life. Can we talk about your cast of characters that we have in this book? <laughs> I mean, you, you, you touched, okay, so it's, as someone who's your, your friend, it took me a sec, a beat, because all of a sudden, okay, well, I know Joel is Joel, Melissa is yeah. Melissa, Sophie is Sophie, <laughs> then all of a sudden, there's like all these other people, like, wait a second, I, I seem to remember that she had a different name, but suddenly the names have changed. Is this, uh, what's going on? I'll tell you why, Dave Sloan, because <laughs> believe it or not, Yes, I wrote this memoir, okay? My, I put it all out there for the world to see. I am a very private person. <laughs> I really am. Like, I, I'm just, I'm a very private person. So I wanted to protect the privacy of the people that I was writing about. Some, some people have their names because th- there's no rhyme or reason to it. <laughs> um, and only people who know me will know who, like, oh, why did she name someone? <laughs> You would know, oh, that's the same name, but this one isn't. So it's really to protect the privacy of others and really my own privacy in some ways also, if that makes any sense. You went to a rabbi, but there was also another religious figure, very surprising to me, and you kept his real name. So who who is this this (laughs) mystery person who you turned in? Okay, so Joel Osteen was... I know it's so strange. <laughs> it was. This was the most surprising part of the book for me. Yeah. I know it's very strange, but I took tremendous comfort in Joel Osteen's sermons. <laughs> You're not the first person to, to say that. It's people who I know, which really shocked me. Well, there's. I think for me, it's because it, it, it really did happen the way it does in the book, which was I was in my car listening to satellite radio, I, I stumbled upon the station and it said like, stay tuned and Joel will be back with another heartfelt message for you, something like that. And I literally, I, I had like a heart attack in, in my car and I was waiting and waiting and waiting for Joel to come. I thought it was my husband with a message for me. And I thought, of course, he's going to come through on the radio. Like it's Joel, it's music. And they start playing. I mean, Joel Osteen has a rhythm to, to his story. He always starts with something funny. And then he does this whole thing about like, hold up your Bible, say it like you believe it. And I was so confused because I was like, this isn't Joel. Like, again, I was so deep in my grief that anything 
that could have been a sign, I ran with it. So this to me was like the, the biggest sign here. Like here comes my husband, Joel. And I was like, okay, it doesn't sound like him. He's talking about a Bible. It's not really his funniest thing, but I, I think it's him. And then I realized, I looked at my dashboard, which had been black. It had been completely black and blank, like almost like the car had died or something. And then out of nowhere, I see it's Joel Osteen and his picture and his phone number, which is the same phone number as my Joel. You know, the last, it's like 555 Joel is the, I don't know if you knew that Dave, when you would call Joel, but um, so I had to keep listening and I liked him. I liked Joel Osteen. I was like, oh, he's funny and he's cute. And he's got like a twinkle in his eyes. And Joel, my Joel had a twinkle in his eyes and they both have dark hair and they have the same initials and the same phone number. And I was just completely won over and his sermons really spoke to me somehow. I, they helped me in my darkest time somehow. And I know it's weird and I still love him. And I know he's controversial, but in terms of like helping me manage my grief, that's, that was enough for me. You say it's weird because it's weird to you for people, for people who know you, or you just think it's weird. Well, because I'm Jewish ish and I'm not particularly religious and to that end, I don't look at Joel Osteen, even though he's an evangelical preacher. To me, it's not like he's religious. I'm not looking at him as a religious outlet. I'm looking at him as more of an inspirational guide. So I think that's, I think it's, it may or may not be something that people kind of like, oh, that's, that's weird. You know, I think my rabbi will think it's strange. <laughs> <laughs> did you reach out to him at all? Or Yes. Yeah. You did? We'll did you see. write to him? We will see Dave's song. <laughs> what, what for the next book oh, really <laughs> that's funny because that's almost word for word it, it was my cousin also Jewish who originally told me that she listens to him but she prefaced it with the same you know don't laugh or don't think it's weird well the which, funny thing is when I told my sister I was like you're not going to believe it I thought I was getting a message from Joel but it was really this guy named Joel Osteen she's like I listen to Joel Osteen too <laughs> <laughs> but she would watch. See, I didn't even know he had a TV show or, you know, like, I, like all those preachers have their channels or whatever. So my sister would watch him, but I would listen in my car, you know, satellites. <laughs> well, he's that popular for a reason. Yeah. Did you bring, let Sophie know this, that, yeah. uh, that this man well, has entered your life? Car, <laughs> yeah. The minute she got in the car, it's like, Oh my God daddy was giving me a message and, and, and he's, and it's Joel Osteen. It's not really daddy, but it's Joel Osteen. He has the same phone number and the same list. And she's like, that's not dad. My, she, she like changed the channel. She, she didn't buy into it, but she let me, we each let each other experience our grief differently. So she wasn't, you know, she was 13. So she, she didn't have a point of reference as to who or what Joel Osteen was. And she just kind of was like, all right, that's my mom's a weirdo. <laughs> what else is new? Which should probably be that anyway from a 13-year-old. Exactly. <laughs> she get along well with Marco? Yes. But, you know, it took a minute. He, he was her guitar teacher. So yeah. Weird. And they have definitely formed their own relationship, which is great. But it took a while. Understandably, it took a while. Yeah. But even weirder with that she did know him before, that this wasn't just somebody that you met and, and yeah. eventually introduced her, that she knew him and then she had to see him differently. Exactly. Yeah. And also it's like, it's still a teacher. It's not, like, it could have been her math teacher. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it could have been, it's just that weird dynamic when you're a kid, I think, and you have a teacher and then your parent starts to date them. It's bizarre. He does not know pop culture. He does not, he really just lives in his own world. I mean, he's really like, um, we are very different people. Somehow it works between us and um, we kind of appreciate our differences. And the thing really about him that I think I love the most, and was certainly I, I, I touch on this in the book for sure, because he and Joel knew each other, he has like, I'd like that they knew each other. And I like that Joel liked him and appreciated that he was teaching Sophie how to play the guitar. And I think because Marcos is the way he is, he didn't treat me like the widow. He didn't look at me with pity or sadness or like the, how are you that I was getting from everybody. People would see me and start crying. 
Um, and he did none of that. And I think that meant so much to me at the time and continues to, because look, here I am writing a book about Joel and our love and life together. And he couldn't be more supportive. He encourages it. He supports it. He's not at all threatened by it or feels like you're still talking about that. Like, you know, and there are some widows I know who do have that experience when they move forward in their lives with other people. He's just been very um, accepting and, you know, I'm still married to Joel. Like, that's the other thing. It's like my husband died, but he's still my husband, if that makes sense. I feel like I have always valued and appreciated and, and always have had very close friendships my whole life. Mm-hmm. And my friends have always meant the world to me. And certainly in losing my husband, my friends were there, you know, and they've taken on a different role in some ways because Joel isn't here. So, so many of my friends, like two of my best friends, I call my husband. <laughs> I'll say, oh, I'm talking to my husband, You're, you know, or I'll say to Sophie, oh, I, I spoke to my husband, Stephanie, today, and she gets it. And it's because, like, they are the ones I tell. It, it, I don't know. I, I also think, you know, when, when you're middle-aged, love comes around a second time. It is so different from what it looked like in my 20s. Like, I don't have a checklist. I don't have a, I mean, Joel checked every box, you know, funny, smart, handsome, Jewish, That you know, not that I had an active checklist. Joel was like, I loved him <laughs> immediately, but it was just different. Like, I fell into this thing with Marcos. I had no idea that we'd still be together this many years later. I thought he'd be like, to help me get over some of my grief, but like, here we are, and It is very different. Like, he does not have to be my everything the way Joel was. But I think it's just because I'm older, I'm more mature, my needs are different. And it's nice. It's kind of nice. We're we're together, but we don't live together. I don't know. It's it's very different and very great. That's so nice to hear. It's really nice to hear. And also, but also the place of friendships is, is also nice to hear the value that's, that's put on friendships. And I totally, I get that. I'm sure you went down, I'm like, who, what other young widows have there been? I mean, I, our current president, Joe Biden was widowish. You yeah, know? yeah. I'm sure, you know, Katie Couric was also in the same, um, Pat Oswald. I mean, did you look at their stories or you were in groups? Did you want to kind of bond with, with someone or? You hear know, that story that, or is that why you read the book why you wrote the book because you want you want to tell your unique story yeah i mean it kind of dovetails into the joel osteen thing in a way because i could not relate to any of the other grief and loss and young widow books out there i mean cheryl sandberg was like oh she's a widow the air she breathes is so rarefied mm-hmm. and so one percent that i wasn't interested in her story because here I was having like my struggles as an only parent and just the weight of responsibility of being the only parent. And, you know, I don't live the same life economically that Sheryl Sandberg has. So that already, I wasn't interested. There were some young widow books for sure that I'm sure are very helpful to many people. They did not resonate for me at all. I was very selfish in my grief. I felt like, well, nobody was married to Joel, so nobody knows the suffering that I'm living through. Like it was unbearable and I didn't want to talk to other widows and I wasn't interested in their stories. I liked Patton Oswalt because he kind of was famous in that for being a widow and then finding love again. And that's where I found myself. And so I kind of liked him and his story, but I think that's why like the places that I took comfort in like Joel Osteen and Ayanla Van Zant who is a spiritualist and she is not a widow. She lost a child, however, an adult child. She had written extensively about that. I related to her. I loved Ayala. I loved Joel. Like I, I was going to like these non-traditional places that were a great comfort to me, but none of that really informed my story. I think my story was really just my story. Like, and, and I wasn't consciously thinking, and I, I mean, it's, it's a different, switch as a writer like I wasn't thinking I was so used to as a tv writer constantly thinking commercially like who am I going to pitch this to who's going to buy it where is this going to run if this is on a network or if this is at a studio and they like this kind of stuff and that's what I need to pitch like but I had none of that going through my mind writing Widowish. I just was like intent on telling my story 
And I think it served me well because I, I wasn't trying to like, I didn't really, I, it's not like I wrote it with an audience in mind, which is what you kind of do as a screenwriter. You're kind of trained to do that. When you finally decided to, or when you finally agreed to have your widow group, you know, invite others, was that more for giving to others or was it, did you really think that it was going to help you? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, that came about because there was a woman in the neighborhood who had also lost her husband when she was young. He had been gone for five years by the time she, maybe only maybe three years when she reached out to me. I resisted meeting her. I resist, Allison in the book, I resisted meeting her. We had all of these people in common. We grew up, I mean, lived in the same neighborhood. Our kids went to the same schools. We never really knew each other. I finally agreed to meet her for coffee and I loved her. And I thought, oh, this really is helpful. And I was so impressed that she didn't know me at all. She reached out to me, was so kind and so meaningful. But I still was like, she, she'll be my widow friend and that's it. Like, I don't, you know, I don't. Yeah. But then I think because my essays were getting published in broader audiences, like, I mean, the internet's the internet, it's huge. I just, I, I was hearing from people quite often. And eventually I heard from a few people in my neighborhood who I never knew, or not necessarily like my neighbor, but you know, like within the, within the vicinity of where I live. Yeah. And they all wanted to meet me. I, I was like, I, what do they want from me? Like, I don't, I, I couldn't, I, it, it made no sense. I was like, why? I, I have nothing to say to them. What? Are, but so I went to my friend, Allison, and I was like, all these widows want to meet me. She's like, okay, let's do it. Let's just have a widow group. And I was like, what? Like I, but we did, because of her, I really did. And I was so happy I mean, for me, it was enough that they would read something I wrote and that it resonated and brought them comfort um, and made them feel not so alone. But I didn't want to become this like person who could solve all their like I, I just I, I it, it felt like a weird kind of responsibility in a way. But I realized it really was just about the community of like yeah. relating to something because when you're young and you lose your spouse and your parents are all still alive and you ask them for help. The only people they can introduce you to are their like 70 year old friends who are also widowed. Yeah. And it's not comforting because that in some ways, you know, that's the order of things that mm -hmm. you get married, you grow old together, have a full life together and you lose a spouse in your seventies or eighties or, but when it happens in your forties or younger, there, there were some people in my group who were in their thirties or even in your fifties. It's so discombobulating it's so like it makes no sense and there's very few people to turn to so i recognize that that was really crucial to my healing and if i could then offer that to other people great and i was very clear about that when i sent out an invitation to my first like widow group i was very clear like this is not a bereavement group i'm not a therapist but that's i didn't want people falling apart in front of me and thinking i could like help them in some way i just wanted it like i've walked a similar path like let's talk yeah. Um, so that's really what the group was and it was great and, and, and I loved it. And just like my writing group, but it just, it ended up being like one of those things that was very healing for me. And it's nice. It's, it is, it's like, it's, it's about like community really just finding that community. And even though we may not get together as often as we once did, we're still very much part of the same community. I think that's really nice though, that you were able to not be the, the widow guru. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now I'm fine with it. I have a book out, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But at the time, so this is probably the question you'll put, you're probably going to hear the most is uh, what what does your daughter think of your book? Did she read it? Yeah, and she, she, loves, went, it. she yeah. loves it. Yeah, I mean the most challenging thing about writing the book is actually everything about Sophie in the book, or like the things, the moments that she and I had because I really wanted to respect her privacy. She didn't choose to tell the story; I did. And so I really just tried to kind of keep the emotion out of it, if that makes sense, and, and just write it as it really happened. It, it was challenging because of that. But I didn't want to, like, impose my feelings or project my feelings about that particular thing because that was my experience. It may not have been her experience. But, no, she loves it. She thinks I handled it great and she's just she's very excited about all of it that's wonderful that's good that's to hear just yeah. what you want to hear that, right that's yeah. the review you want yeah. right yeah i think we've taken up enough of your time here <laughs> <laughs> well th thank you so much this is so much uh, as you know as always I, I love talking with you 
And me too. This was yeah. great. Thanks so much, you guys. Thank you. Oh, so so happy to meet you. Davis talked about you for so long. Oh, I guess the final thing you I've heard stories of where Joel was cremated, correct? And you yes. you've sent him in different places. Where will we He's might we find Joel? You would find most of him in the um, outfield of Dodger Stadium. I haven't written about that. I, I don't know how. I mean, it was so impactful. That was great. And your one of your guests, Craig Rosen, was with me on that endeavor. My new, yeah, my new best friend. Oh, he's he's I, my, he's my Marcos, really. It's <laughs> <laughs> Craig. Craig in the book is Greg. That one I'll give away. But yeah, that was so he's at Dodger Stadium. He's um, in the Dead Sea in Israel and in the Wailing Wall. He's at Coachella. He's um, in the Hamptons. <laughs> and um, his family all has peace. I mean, Joel was not a huge guy, but my God, the ashes are just, there's a lot. <laughs> That's That's, it's, it's interesting how that works. But um, yeah, he's, he's in a lot of pretty cool places. But the Dodger... Dodger Stadium is a big one. Uh, in 2013, we saw, uh, we got to see The Who and Robert Plant. One of his favorite albums was Quadrophenia. And he wrote, <laughs> he wrote to me, the show was fantastic. Roger's vocals exceeded my expectations and the production value was awesome. The tributes were excellent. I've seen them a few times and this may have been my favorite show. I miss him in my own unique way. And, you know, it's, it's, it's nice that you, you were able to capture Joel. And, you know, he's always going to be alive like that. Oh, that's, thank you. you know, that was really, like, that's the greatest gift in writing the book is that it keeps Joel alive and not yeah. to everything. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. <sighs> All right. We'll see Tweety sometime whenever this lifts again. You know, we'll go. We'll, we'll see. I know. Wow. Okay. Thanks, you guys. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Bye. 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 Man, that was a lot of fun. She's She's wonderful, isn't she? Wow, she's fabulous. She could she could easily be, you know, your best friend or, or my best friend. She was great to talk to. What a story. Yeah, and the story continues. Yeah, she's quite the amazing person how she has uh, adjusted all this and I and and I really want to meet Marcos. <laughs> <laughs> One day when when shows get back, I, I um, he's he's an extremely talented uh, guitarist. I've seen him play a number of times. It's amazing. So when all clears up, we will go see Marco's play, and we will uh, hang with Melissa, and she'll uh, we'll buy her a drink and uh, toast Joel. Uh, I look forward to those days again. Oh, I will look forward to that too. Really, she's a she's a, a very special person. It seems indeed she is. So uh, until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.